This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This episode is brought to you by Dignity Health. A new survey from one of the nation's largest healthcare systems, Dignity Health, reveals more than 75% of Americans believe individual mindfulness can benefit their community. Taking just two minutes a day to be more present in your daily life not only benefits you, but also those around you. Set aside two minutes every day to be mindful and reflect on relationships and the purpose behind your work and daily activities. Share how you're making this a daily habit on social media with the Take Two Mins hashtag. That's Take the Number Two Mins. Visit DignityHealth.org slash Take Two Mins for more mindfulness tips. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 16, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Allison Rubin talks about how volcanoes store their magma. Is it a liquid or a solid and for how long? And David Grimm is here to give us this week's hits from our online daily news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on chimp retirement. This is a feature story from you, Dave, which means two things in my book. One, we won't get to everything. And two, (laughs) you're going to do a lot of the talking. Okay, let's just start with the premise here. Chimps in the U.S. can't really be used for research anymore. And they're supposed to be, quote, retired. Why can't they be involved in research? Well, so this is a decision that's been a long time coming. Basically, a couple things happened. Uh, a couple years ago, the National Institutes of Health started talking about not needing the chimps it had anymore. It had about 350, 400 chimpanzees that it owned. There's also about 300 chimpanzees and, uh, that are privately owned by universities and corporations. And NIH had commissioned this report, which basically said that, you know, we thought chimpanzees would be really important for biomedical research, studying things like hepatitis and AIDS. They haven't really proved that important. So we don't really need them. So NIH said, we're basically going to phase out our chimpanzees and going to retire them. And then in 2015, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service declared all U.S. chimpanzees endangered, which basically precluded anybody effectively from doing any sort of invasive biomedical research on them. So it's been a couple of years since this happened. And the question is, there's still about 600 chimpanzees in 
research facilities. And people thought that once NIH and U.S. Fish and Wildlife started making these announcements, all these animals would be retired to sanctuaries. But in right. the past couple of years, only about 73 have been retired to sanctuaries. What does retirement look like for a chimp? So it's really a question of who you ask because a lot of these research facilities say, hey, we have these really nice facilities for chimps. We have these outdoor playgrounds for them. Let's just let them retire here. But sanctuaries say that they can offer chimps a better way of life. A lot of them have, or some of them have, like these very almost large forested habitats where chimps can sort of go wherever they want in the forest, can come and go as they please. Plus, sanctuaries argue our whole purpose is to take care of chimpanzees, where the research labs, that wasn't that ha- wasn't their purpose for a long time. Right. So the research labs have these animals, and NAH still has a lot of these animals. What's the holdup? Why aren't they being moved to sanctuaries? And again, it depends who you ask, because right. sanctuaries have said, well, we haven't had time to expand quickly enough. And they blame the research community for that, or some of them have, because they've said the research community should have really been planning for retirement for a long time. They should have seen the writing on the wall. And instead, like, we're trying to do all this last minute. It mm-hmm. takes us time to fundraise, to construct, and we don't have the capacity right now. Whereas I said, the research community has said, you know, we think the chimps would be better off where they are. And so they've been dragging their feet a little bit, or at least that's what critics have said. And also there's been some blame on the NIH, basically saying the NIH really started this process in motion, but it really hasn't done enough. It really hasn't had a great plan for retiring its chimpanzees, which has also slowed things down. Let me just throw out money question. Who would pay for a sanctuary over the long term, I mean, it must cost a lot to house a chimp, right? Yeah, that's that's a big problem. It can cost up to $20,000 a year just to care for a chimp, not to mention the millions of dollars sanctuaries have to spend to construct the facilities and to expand their habitat for the chimps. And for most sanctuaries, all this money comes from public donations and grants. The government's not giving them money. The government gives one sanctuary, Chimp Haven, money because that's the sanctuary that takes the government chimps. But for the hundreds of other chimps that aren't owned by the government, these sanctuaries have to raise the money themselves, which can take a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And you visited at least one of these places. What are they like? Yeah, I visited Chimp Haven, which is the um, sanctuary where all the government chimps are supposed to go. It's a beautiful sanctuary, lots of room for the chimps to roam. Um, and uh, and a lot of chimps are there already. There are more than 200 chimps, ex-research chimps there already. But there's a, a handful of other sanctuaries around the country that are also trying to bring in some of these chimps. But as you know, as I mentioned, there's a lot of factors that are, mm-hmm. that's really slowing this down. There's a lot more to learn about this. The story is already online, so you should check it out. And I guess you'll be following this for a bit longer. For sure. Okay. Now we have a story on sunless tanning at the cellular level. What does it mean to tan at the cellular level, Dave? Well, you know, your skin cells crank out a pigment called melanin in response to UV rays. And melanin protects us against those UV rays, but it also makes our skin darker. Well, at least for most of us, if you are redheaded and fair skinned, you have some issues with your melanin producing pathway, which means you don't produce a whole lot of melanin, which means you don't get very tan. And it also means you're more likely to burn. Right. And the idea in this experiment was to see if fair skin could be influenced by a drug that started up this melanin synthesizing process, basically skipped over the genetic problems that someone (laughs) tends to burn like me and uh, gives them a tan instead. Is that what happened when they tested it? Well, right. So they found a way to sort of kickstart this process. They tested it in what are called redhead mice. Now, these mice don't necessarily have red hair, but they kind of have rust-colored fur. They burn easily. And what the researchers found is when they applied this compound, which really stimulates melanin production, the mouse's skin turned jet 
black, but returned to normal in a couple of weeks when the researchers stopped applying this compound. Okay, it just does not sound safe. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, and that's the big issue here. They haven't tested this in people. They have tested it on human skin where they saw a similar response, but they actually haven't used this on real human beings here. And that's one concern experts have is, is this compound actually safe? Now, the researchers said they didn't see any adverse effects in mice, but we're going to have to do some sort of clinical trial in people before this is on our store shelves. Here's where my worry wartness comes in. Say this does actually get out there and people can apply this chemical and turn their skin tan just, you know, by adding it. Are they going to think that they're protecting themselves from the sun with this additional melanin? Yeah, it's a great point. The researchers say, first of all, you should always use sunscreen no matter what else you're using. The shielding that you get from a tan provides less shielding from UV radiation uh, than just a low SPF sunscreen would do. Yeah, this stuff can make you tan but it's not necessarily going to protect you from the sun. But even if people have this false sense of security, one benefit is if people know that they can apply a tan rather than getting one in a tanning booth and that actually could prevent a lot of skin cancer, then that could actually prevent a lot of skin cancer. What's wrong with a spray tan? Is that a serious question? <laughs> <laughs> Last up, we have a story on lying mice. This is my favorite part of the story, <laughs> the confusion engendered by the kind of the punchline, which is mice somehow revealing lies. Are they lying mice? Are the mice the new truth sniffers? Or, okay, wrong mice, it's computer mice. Mm. They may hold clues to people lying online. What problem were researchers trying to solve by looking at how people use their mice to answer questions? Well, obviously, we've got people stealing other people's identities online, trying to Tend that they are somebody that they are not. And you can't put polygraph on these people because none of that stuff can be done remotely. And so the question is, is there a way that people act online when they're lying that would give them away? And in the experiment, the first thing they did was they set subjects up with fake identities and asked them to answer questions on a right. computer. And it turns out it's important to ask unexpected questions. Why? Right. Well, because you could rehearse. Like if Sarah, if I'm like, Pretend that you are a 10-year-old boy online that grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Like you could do a bit of research and you could probably answer some questions about mm -hmm. Cleveland if I asked you. If I all of a sudden asked you an unexpected question like, what is your zodiac sign or what cross streets did you live on in Cleveland? You're going to have to think about that. You know, that's, there's going to be a delay. You may even like be a little bit nervous when you're answering those questions, which may cause a delay. And that's something that computers could theoretically flag. And so with these questions, you know, just the questions, we're not going to talk about mice yet. How easy was it to tell truth from lies? With just the questions themselves, computers could tell about 78 to 85 percent of the time whether somebody was lying, which is pretty good. But ideally, you want to be a lot better than that. Yeah. So let's bring in the mouse trails. Bring in the mice. So basically, the idea is if you are lying, then maybe your mouse will give you away. Maybe that instead of like if you have to answer a yes or no question, you've got to navigate your pointer over to the yes or the no. Maybe you're not going to take as direct a route to that answer if you're hesitating, if you're nervous. Uh, okay. So how much accuracy did they get when they looked at mouse trails? Now, this time, the team was able to get up to 95% accuracy. This seems... Pretty out there. Is there is there a scenario the researchers uh, went into this with, like where it could be used in real life? Well, they're thinking maybe it could be a first screen. So maybe if somebody is trying to verify their identity online, maybe if there's a border, computerized border checkpoint where somebody has to sort of say who they are, this might be a way to pull some of those people out of line and ask them more questions. Okay. 
What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about whether bacteria injected into your heart could help save you from a heart attack. Also a story about a designer protein that could help fight the flu virus. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got an item about testing whether NIH grant reviewers are biased by race and gender. Also a story about how a spat over design is threatening China's plans to build the world's largest telescope. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Okay. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. This week's show is brought to you by a top-rated production by American Public Media called Brains On. It's a podcast for kids and curious adults. What makes the show special is that it's really driven by kids. They submit questions like, why do cats purr? How does the internet get to us? Or do we all see the same colors? Then they interview real scientists and experts to find the answers. Sometimes that means talking to a food scientist or a snake handler. Other times, that means putting on a play about sound waves or writing songs about sleep. Even though it's real science, it's filled with things like funny songs and mystery sounds to make it fun and entertaining for kids and adults. The show is specifically built to be enjoyable for parents, too, so they can listen alongside their children. It's a unique, interactive way for the whole family to learn and laugh together. In June, they're launching a special series on cars that's perfect for listening on the road. Check it out. Uh, Subscribe to Brains On on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. There's been a longstanding debate about what is happening under volcanoes, how much magma is stored as liquid, and how much is cool enough to solidify. To find out something about magma storage, Allison Rubin and colleagues looked at zircon crystals from a volcano in New Zealand for traces of its history of heating and cooling. Welcome, Allison. Thank you for having me. Let's start with what is a zircon? Uh, I have heard of them before, but I'm not sure it was in this context. Yeah, zircons are a very common mineral that form in many different volcanic centers. And did you just pick them up off the ground, get them out from under the volcano somehow? We went to New Zealand and collected a bunch of pumice that erupted from this volcano and crushed it and separated out the zircon and then just went in and looked under a microscope and picked them out by hand. Okay. (laughs) And what are they doing under the volcano or outside of the volcano? Are they key to, you know, kind of what makes up magma? They are uh, what's called an accessory mineral, and they generally tend to uh, take a lot of elements into their crystal structures that don't go into many common minerals. So common minerals are things like quartz and feldspar that are made up of major elements like calcium and aluminum. And then zircon tends to take in a lot of the uranium and other trace elements that don't go into other minerals. Okay. The question you're asking of these crystals is, have you been hanging around in hot liquid magma or something slightly cooler? And for how long? How would these variables leave clues on the crystals? So the first thing we want to understand is how long the crystals were down there uh, since their formation until they were erupted. And the way that we can determine this is essentially by taking a zircon crystal, um, which undergoes crystallization similar to how a tree trunk does, where different periods of growth record different 
rings of sorts or zones within the crystal. And we can analyze distinct zones within these crystals and essentially determine based on the compositions and concentrations of elements and isotopes in each zone, at what points, at what age did they crystallize? You kind of have an, a gauge of how old the crystals are, but then how did you, how were you able to tell that the temperature was changing around them? We measured the concentrations of lithium in the zircon crystal and their distributions in the crystal are temperature dependent. So we were able to look at them and basically determine that these crystals could not have been held at high temperatures for more than decades to centuries. When you examined several crystals from this volcano, what did you learn about their heating and cooling history, or more more broadly, the history of this magma under the volcano? So the age data told us that these crystals existed beneath this volcano for between tens of thousands of years to hundreds of thousands of years. So they were down there for a long time. And the diffusion profiles told us that we could not have kept these crystals at high temperatures for much longer than at most a few hundred years. So this implies that these crystals could not have spent more than about at most 4% of their lifetimes at high temperatures. Ergo, these crystals probably spent over 95, uh, if not more, percent of their lifetimes in um, cold, mostly solid magma. So is that surprising to you? I mean, I kind of imagine that volcanoes would have like hot pockets underneath them full of liquid magma for a long time before they erupted. Is that not what you expected to find? It has been proposed before, and people have done some work on this, um, showing that it's actually pretty hard to keep magma in a hot liquid state for very long because as the melt rises through the crust, it tends its uh, heat tends to dissipate pretty quickly. So it's hard to maintain a large body of melt at high temperatures. Mm-hmm. So it was not necessarily surprising that it wouldn't be spending all of its time at high temperatures, but this was the first um, actual number we've been able to put on it within a specific crystal. Okay. Well, the crystals stayed in the magma during huge events, like an eruption 45,000 years ago. What does that suggest about what they're doing down there? This probably suggests that, well, two things. It implies that the uh, the regions of the magma reservoir in which the crystals are residing are being heated and cooled very rapidly, and thus that the areas that these crystals are sitting in are probably pretty small. So you can think of it kind of like a snow cone, in a sense, where the entire system is largely solid, but there are these little pockets of melt that are being heated and cooled very rapidly. Okay. Well, what about you know seeing the history of the heating and cooling underneath. Can that help with predictions? Yes. uh, I think we are still a ways away from really being able to anticipate eruptions with any great precision. But the most important contribution, in my opinion, of this work is that if we want to be able to interpret the observations we get from monitoring volcanoes, we need to understand what's happening inside the volcanoes and on what timescales. So I think this work represents a pretty big step in understanding what's happening within volcanoes, and that eventually may be used down the line to help with predictions. All right, here come the off-the-wall questions. Mm-hmm. Why can't we just put a thermometer down there? Why <laughs> Isn't there a way to more directly get the temperature of things, or is this just a much longer timeline than we could ever observe? 
Yeah, there are two reasons for that. The first is the analytical capability to actually get into a magma reservoir and measure it. Um, we currently don't have the instruments to be able to do that, and it wouldn't be it would only be essentially one very small part mm -hmm. if we could reach it. We could uh, that we can actually reach. Um, and the other thing is that if we want to know the long-term histories of these magma reservoirs, these zircon crystals record histories that are tens of thousands of years to hundreds of thousands of years old. So we can get a picture of how this volcanic center is behaving over long periods of time rather than just on the weeks to month scale. And how big is this chamber that we're talking about? So we looked at the Taupo Volcanic Zone, which has two specific magma reservoir mm -hmm. systems. And the one we looked at is called the Okataina Volcanic Center. And this magma reservoir is probably about um, a couple kilometers wide um, and one or two kilometers deep. And it has produced, for context, the biggest eruption it produced was about 120 cubic kilometers of material was wow. erupted. That's a lot. Um, yeah. Allison, thanks so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. Allison Rubin and colleagues write about magma storage under volcanoes in this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.